morning. We pray that you would descend by your spirit to give illumination and understanding to our hearts and minds. And that you might also touch our spirit that we would be willing to hear and obey. Give us the grace to do. In the wonderful name of Christ our Savior we pray. Amen. During the 1980s, my wife and I and family lived in eastern Pennsylvania, and occasionally I would attend the football games of the Penn State Nittany Lions. They had a popular cheer during those games where one side of the stadium would say, we are, and the other side would say, Penn State. It was an antiphonal cheer, much like our go green, go white, as one side would answer back with another, with the other. Several years ago, Penn State went through some great difficulties. There was a scandal, and there was abuse, all kinds of secrecy, and a long investigation, and many lawsuits, and people upset. And the chant, although still used at games, sounded hollow. The same pride and respect seemed to be gone. There was disappointment and embarrassment. But as time passed, decisions and judgments were made and some degree of healing. And the football team, resurging, now ranked, what, 13th in the nation. The hearty cheer once again rings through Happy Valley. We are Penn State. And as I was reading Ephesians chapter 2, that thought came to me, we are the church. Now, I won't do something corny like half of you stand up and say, we are, and the other half say, the church. I always hate that when pastors do that kind of thing, and so I won't do it. But it is important for us to be able to say in our deepest hearts, we are the church. Now, things happen in the church that embarrass us. Sometimes scandals take place, and for a while, we can't voice that with confidence like we once did, but Praise the Lord for grace and mercy. And what we need to do is get a clear biblical view of who the church really is. And then we need to live like the church. That's Paul's conviction. And that's why he is spending so much time telling us who we are in Christ and who we are together as the church. Open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, as we continue to evaluate our seated position in Christ, both individually and corporately, before we get to the walking part, which begins in chapter 4. Now, we do need to remind ourselves that in the book of Ephesians, there is tremendous hatred that exists among the races far more than simply between football teams in a college game. This is the hatred between the Jew and the Gentile, mirrored and reflected today in some degree and in some places between the Jew and the Arabs, focused a little more on the Arabs, but really aimed at all Gentiles, including us. In that day, a scholar tells us, the Jews' hatred was so great that they said that God created the Gentiles as simply fuel for the fires of hell. They said God only loves Israel, 
of all the nations that he made. According to Jewish law back then, it was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need when she was giving birth to a child because that would merely be bringing another Gentile into the world. If a Jew and Gentile intermarried, the Jewish family would hold a funeral for that boy or girl and basically, in essence, say, they are dead to us. The hatred, so intense, it was palatable, and then these people become Christians. And then what do you do? I was watching a, uh, a clip from a World War II vet who fought at Iwo Jima. Is that right? Iwo Jima, yeah. Uh, on the island, the fierce battle. And in the midst of that battle, the people who fought in that war came away hating the Japanese. I mean, with a pure hatred. And then this one guy, who I think was a captain in the battle and survived when many didn't, one of his sons married a Japanese woman. And he had to come to grips with his hatred. That's what's happening in the church. Jew and Gentile are becoming believers, and now they have to grapple with their hatred and their prejudice. And so what are they going to do? And Paul lays down in wonderful descriptive terms what the church is and how it needs to function. So let's start out, first of all, by once again looking at some of the metaphors that Paul uses to describe the church. These are pictures. That's what a metaphor is. It's an analogy. It's taking something we know uh, very well, we're familiar with, and connecting it to something that needs a little more explanation. So he says in verse 19, after he talks about us being reconciled to God personally by the cross and reconciled to one another, Jew and Gentile, by the cross, he says in verse 19, consequently, you Gentiles are no longer foreigners and aliens. You're fellow citizens with God's people. So here's the first metaphor. You are citizens of God's kingdom. You're not expats anymore who need visas or passports to get in. You hold a birth certificate. You are joined together, equal as citizens in a kingdom. We read in the book of Colossians when Paul is writing these same thoughts. He talks about the fact in Colossians chapter 1 that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So now we are citizens in the kingdom. By the way, the Roman Empire was at its peak, at its zenith. And Paul is talking about a greater kingdom that shall overcome even Rome. That was pretty bold talk. But we need to understand that we are united into one kingdom. It's a great thing when we have our holidays to remember those who have fought for our freedom and the glory of this country and the principles upon which our wonderful country was founded. And we sometimes mourn because we've departed from some of those foundational truths. But it is still a wonderful thing to be united and when there's great tragedy in America, it has a tendency to unite us as Americans together because we're one in this country, citizens of this great land. 
But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say we are also children of one family, members of one household. And this is a more intimate picture. He's already called himself father in verse 18. And he's going to bring that name again up in chapter 3, verse 14. I kneel before the father. So there is this picture now of a father and his family. A wonderful, loving relationship that ought to exist in the midst of any family. We are one. And when tragedy comes to a family, they have a tendency to pull together. They criticize one another all the time as kids, but when there's trouble, they band together as one. And then you've got the imagery of stones in one building. This picks up in verse 20. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone, and in him, the whole building is being joined together, stone upon stone, and it rises up to become a holy temple. So now we are stones of one building, or maybe you could say one temple. It's interesting, when Paul wrote these words, there was a temple standing in Ephesus that was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis, or Diana, as she was called by the locals. In fact, Ephesus became a destination point for people to travel on holiday and simply imagine, uh, to, to see what they have imagined, to see in person this magnificent building. In Jerusalem, there was a temple to Herod, built by Herod. It was supposed to be God's temple, but maybe it was as much Herod's as it was God's. First there was Solomon's, then Zerubbabel's temple, and now the temple that Herod built for the Jews. And in both of these temples, they were supposed to be houses for God, but the temple in Ephesus for Diana was empty because the statue in their holy place was of a pagan god who didn't exist. And in the temple in Jerusalem, that was empty because the glory had departed. But God says, now I'm building a new temple. It's not a material building on a local site. It is a spiritual building on an international basis or scope. And it is an interracial family or temple that is being built. It's Jew and Gentile together. We're in the same kingdom. We're in the same family. We're stones in the same building. Now, the foundation is, did you notice, the apostles and prophets. What does that mean? Well, I think it probably refers to the apostles or the, the prophets who wrote in the Old Testament and had the revelation from God of God's truth. And they were the ones who spoke, thus saith the Lord, and their writings were inscripturated. And the apostles are the representatives of the New Testament church, and they also had direct revelation from God, as we will see in chapter 3, and they wrote down what God told them to write, and this is now inscripturated in our Bible, the Holy Scripture, both the Old and New Testament, the prophets and the apostles. In practical terms, this means that the church is built on the scriptures, the foundational documents for our faith. And when you build a building upon a foundation, you don't tamper with the foundation. 
It isn't to be changed by additions or subtractions or modifications by new teachers who come later on in, in life. No, there is a foundation laid by God in his word that cannot change. He says, don't add to this book. So our task is to study it and understand it, not to add to it or take from it. The church stands or falls by its loyal adherence and dependence to the word of God upon the holy scriptures. And so that's what he's referring to as the foundation. Now we read in 1 Corinthians that no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, and that's because the scriptures are all about Christ. In the Old Testament, predicting him. In the New Testament, exposing and explaining him. But he is also called the cornerstone. So you've got a foundation for this building in verse 20, and a cornerstone, which gives stability and symmetry. But there's something else a cornerstone often does. It binds two walls together. And this cornerstone, Christ Jesus, is binding two races together, the Jew and the Gentile. That's been Paul's whole argument. We're one building. And we are individually the stones. Although Paul doesn't explicitly say that here, that's what Peter says. In 1 Peter 2, we come to Christ, the, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. And we are like living stones, being built into a spiritual house, a royal or holy priesthood. And the scriptures say, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, precious, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So Peter is using the same uh, metaphor, the same analogy of Christ the cornerstone and we are living stones built on the foundation of Christ and his word. But we're the same building. And there is this interdependence upon one another and we are to be as one. So the nature of this building or temple, verse 21, is holy. The purpose of this temple, verse 22, is that we are a dwelling place for God. And if you study the scriptures, sometimes the fact that we are a temple of God is referred to an individual. Sometimes it refers to the gathered church local. And sometimes it refers to the church universal, as it will in chapter three. We all are the temple of God, individually and corporately and even Invisibly, internationally, interracially, we are God's dwelling place. And I think when you begin to understand something of this, the church takes on an amazing significance. But that's not all. One other metaphor, we jump down into chapter 3, verse 6. This has already been mentioned, but it says this mystery is that the gospel, um, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. They are members together of one body. So we are citizens of one kingdom, children of one family, stones of one building, and now we're members of one body. 
Jesus rules his kingdom, he loves his family, he dwells in his temple, and he is the head of the body. We are interconnected with one another, we are totally dependent upon Jesus Christ, we're reconciled to God by Christ and the cross, we're reconciled to one another by Christ and the cross, so let's live like it. Let's enjoy this unique relationship that God has given to us. By the way, did you notice the Trinity in verse 22? I don't think I mentioned verse 22 last week. In him, Christ, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God, the Father, lives by the Spirit. And so the triune God lives among us. And that's what excites me about standing up before you and sharing the word of God that comes from the apostles and prophets that is indeed authenticated by the Holy Spirit, written by the Spirit, for our admonition and benefit. And when we gather in Christ's name, God is here. And that to bless. And if you come in and say, I didn't feel anything, probably the fault is with you. Because it's possible to come in and to be so preoccupied with other things that you forget that God is here. And how sad is that? So the scripture tells us that we are the church, a kingdom, a family, a temple, a body, all joined together for the glory of God. Now, notice as we come to chapter three, Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then he goes into a different direction. Uh, by the way, surely you know and have heard about what God did for me, right? And Paul goes in to what could be appropriately called a divine interruption. And he doesn't pick up his original thought until either maybe verse 13, probably verse 14, or as some believe, chapter four, verse one, where he says, I, a prisoner. So Paul begins to talk, I, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Oh, by the way, do you, do you know what God has done in my life for this purpose? And he goes off on a rabbit trail, a divine interruption. This is really encouraging to me because I find myself being interrupted all the time. I find myself preaching, thinking of a thought and beginning to go down that trail and then realizing I'm in big trouble. How am I going to swim back to where I was supposed to be, uh, back to the original river? And you don't see that, but it happens all the time. And sometimes pastors just take those trails and that trail leads to another and that trail leads to another. Pretty soon you have no idea where the pastor is, nor does he or she because they're going in a different direction. Well, the scripture tells us very clearly that the Apostle Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is a divine interruption. A divine interruption. And so let's take the rabbit trail that God wants us to take just for a moment and look at the mystery of the church that is being revealed. The word mystery in the English language refers to a secret, right? something unknown, obscure. 
But the word mystery in the Bible refers to a secret revealed that is no longer obscure but made known. It was hidden for centuries but now exposed and explained. And Paul's whole argument is that God revealed the mystery to me so I can proclaim it to you. That's basically what he says in chapter 3, verse 1 through 13. God reveals the mystery to me, and I want to explain it to you. So let's look at the mystery revealed. Um, Going back to chapter 1, verse 9, we're told that this mystery that has been made known to us is the mystery of his will. That's a good descriptive. So whatever we're going to talk about in this sense of mystery is a description of what God has planned. By the way, this isn't plan B. This is plan A. The mystery is his plan. It's his will revealed. You know, God Almighty knows exactly what he's doing. He's always known what he was going to do. He always knew that man would try to mess it up with sin, and he's already always planned to work in spite of that. His plan is going forward. So Paul says in chapter 3, verse 2, surely you've heard about the administration, that is the organization, the development, uh, the process, the unfolding of God's grace that was given to me for you. And Paul makes it abundantly clear, I'm doing this for you Gentiles. By the way, that's why Paul is in prison. Because he is a servant of Christ to the Gentiles. Had he been a servant of Christ only to the Jews, they might have been able to tolerate him. When he was arrested one time uh, in the temple and taken to the Roman uh, fort, probably Fort Antonio, for suffering punishment, he stood on the steps and addressed the people, and they were quiet as he explained to them how God had called him until he said, and God has sent me to the Gentiles, and that's when a riot took place, the second riot, and they had to pull him into the temple just to save his life and ultimately arrested him because he was a missionary to the Gentiles. So this is God's grace given to me, verse 2, for you Gentiles, that is, The mystery was made known to me by revelation. So that's the second thing. This mystery is not something you and I can figure out. It's not like a riddle. It's not a crossword puzzle. If you have enough brains, you can figure out what God is doing. No, this was revealed through revelation. And that revelation is the apostles and the prophets. They're the ones Uh, ultimately, that have gotten the mystery, and Paul is one of those apostles. Remember when Paul met the Lord on the road to Damascus? He had the mystery revealed to him. And his three years, the backside of the desert, the mystery is revealed. And notice in chapter 3, verse 4, this mystery is concerning Christ. In reading this letter I'm sending to you, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So it's God's will, it's only received by revelation, and it concerns Christ. 
In the book of Colossians, we're told the mystery has been kept for the ages and for generations, and it's now disclosed to the saints. It is the fact that God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the riches of his glory. And the mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Christ is the mystery of God. And then finally, we're told that this mystery, verse 6, is really about a united people. This mystery is that through the gospel of Christ, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, that they are indeed together, sharers together in the promise of Christ. So they are members of one body, again, members of one nation, and they inherit the promises made as well. So it's this idea of a unified people. When you get to chapter five, he's gonna talk about the mystery between a husband and wife becoming one, and he says that's the same mystery of the church that I've been talking about, this unique, mysterious blend into one. And this has always been his purpose. This was always his plan. You remember, don't you, in the book of Genesis chapter 12 that the Abrahamic promise was given to all people. Abraham, you're going to be a blessing and you will be blessed and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. That is, through your descendants, blessing should go everywhere. And then that is quoted when you get to the New Testament in the book of Acts. The Abrahamic blessing is quoted in chapter three as the opportunity to proclaim to the Gentiles the blessing that comes through the Jews. But the Jews forgot it. In Isaiah 49, we're told that the servant of the Lord who has come to the people of Israel to restore the tribes of Jacob is also a light for the Gentiles that he may bring their hearts back to Christ, that salvation may come into their lives. And this is quoted in the Christmas story. When Simeon takes the little baby Jesus he says, you are the glory of Israel and a light to the Gentiles. It's always been the plan of God. Revealed in the old, emphasized in the new. But how God would do this was always a bit fuzzy. There were hints, but not clearly known. Messiah was coming. But they didn't know that when Messiah would come, he would bring Jew and Gentile together as one without any dividing wall between them. And as we've already talked, that they would be melted totally into one. So this is the plan of God. And by the way, this needs to be proclaimed. We don't have time to look at this, but Paul says, God has given me grace to be a servant, verse seven. So God gave him grace to understand, and now grace to serve the gospel and proclaim the gospel so that everyone would be brought together as one. And God's plan is that you and I would be able to take the good news of Christ to every creature. That's why we have a missions program. But you know, you're part of the missions program. And that missions program needs to be local as well as global. 
And it needs to touch every tribe and tongue and nation for the glory of Almighty God. I'm going to ask Corb to come up and help us conclude this sermon in kind of a unique way. I would try to do this myself, but I do not trust my musical ability, which is non-existent. What I want to do is just in a musical way show the difference between unity, pure, plain unity, and something even better. So Corb, lead the people in a unified note. Okay, are you ready for this? All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to split up into three sections. Not yet. Not yet? One note. Just one note? All the same. Okay, ignore what I just said. We're going to start with one note. So let's sing, uh, let's sing the word God. Let's say the word God as we sing. And we're going to hold this note. Okay, that's our note. We're going to say God. Say it together. God. Keep it going. Keep it going. Stop. That was beautiful unity. But it was boring. You ever sing a song with one note? I mean, I do all the time, but it's not supposed to be that way. Now, this is what I was afraid to do. Corb is going to divide us into harmony. Okay, so this is where we're going to split up into three parts. So let's do, we, since we have four sections, we're going to have to be creative here. So um, let's have our dividing line right on this line of the pews, okay? So everyone on this side is all in one group. Okay, then this side, all the way to this line down the pews. You're all one section. Then everyone from over here, over, you're in the third section. Okay? All Good right, luck. so let's try this. So we're going to start over here, and it's going to go, you're going to go, God. And this, the middle section is going to go, God. And then this section over here is going to go, God. Okay, start. Just this note first. So first. God. Second note. Third. Now that is unity with diversity. I tried this once, and when I tried to divide it up into three notes, they all sounded like the same. <laughs> Ruined the whole illustration. And that's what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2. We're one, but we're different. And we join together, we melt together for the glory of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us today to understand that your church is meant to be united. And yet as we continue on in our study of Ephesians, especially when we get to chapter 4, you're going to tell us that there are multiple different gifts in the midst of the church. And when they're used in unity, it produces beautiful harmony. And the, word hear, the world hears the melody. And they're attracted by the song of grace and forgiveness. Help us today to sing your beautiful song for the glory of Christ. Amen. Let's stand together. And let's just close out with this familiar chorus. To the praise of your glory. To the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, 
to the praise of your glory. You are the God who saves to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory. You are the God who saves. Amen.